Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with David Frick about his recent book, Kith, Ken, and Neighbors, Communities and Confessions in 17th Century Vilno, published by Cornell University Press. This book received the 2014 Kulczycki Book Prize in Polish Studies from the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies. David Frick uses a wide-ranging source base to build a compelling narrative and analysis of the practices of toleration in the multi-confessional and multi-ethnic city of Vilno. I'm looking forward to talking to David about his book today. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies. Thank you very much. So as a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us how you became interested in studying Eastern Europe and, in particular, this book topic. Uh, people always ask me that question, and I always say long or short. Um, so I will, Your choice. <laughs> it's a long story. I'll try to give a short version. Uh, it begins with being an absolute failure in French in um, junior high and high school and being convinced that I, I am what Poles call an anti-talent, Jenzikov, an, an anti-talent uh, in languages. Uh, I went to Indiana University to, as an undergrad in 1973 to study music history, and they said, well, you have to sign up for German. And I thought, oh, no. So I went and signed to my German class, and within two weeks, I decided that I was better at German than I was at music, so I switched my major. And um, one of the assistant professors I had was particularly interesting uh, and uh, had time for undergrads and was interested in uh, medieval German studies. So I became interested in that earlier period. And my first German instructor, um, graduate student instructor, was uh, had been a GI in, uh, in Germany and uh, was putting himself through college by teaching German to us undergrads. But he was a Russian major and he was doing a PhD in Russian. And uh, this was 1973, and I'm a Midwesterner, and I guess I spoke a little bit ornery, and it's easy to scandalize people in 1973 by telling them you're learning Russian. So I had a double major in German and Russian, and decided that I wanted to continue in graduate school in pre-modern things, but Slavic. Uh, So they directed me to uh, Yale, uh, where I worked with an Italian by the name of Ricardo Picchio, And his most interesting lectures were on the Renaissance in Poland and Lithuania. So we looked around for a topic uh, that might allow me to find a job when I came back to the United States. Uh, And I went off to Poland in 1980 for 13 months and arrived there 14 days before the solidarity strikes began. And so I had a very interesting year. My library would go on strike and, and I saw many, many interesting things. But I gathered materials uh, on dissertation about a um, Eastern Orthodox, in other words, Ruthenian, 
Belarusian uh, Ukrainian archbishop. Uh, the reason I, I was given this topic because I was I was trained in philology by European professors, and this man wrote a grammar of Church Slavonic that was very important for many centuries. Uh, but the most interesting thing about him is that he converted. He converted from Orthodoxy to the Uniate Church, which we now call the Greek Catholic Church, that exists in the United States as well. Um, uh, so I became very interested in, in that aspect. Uh, I came back to the United States and um, became professor of Polish studies at Berkeley uh, the next year in 1982-3. Uh, and when it came to writing my first book, I thought I should write something that was in Polish, uh, so uh, about Poland. Uh, so I wrote a book on the history of Polish uh, Bible translations in the Reformation, Counter-Reformation. It was interesting because there were so many different confessions in Poland, Lithuania, as we'll see uh, in Vilno in, a, in concentration. Um, then for a second book, I returned to that archbishop, but uh, not focusing at all on his philology, but on his life. And slowly began to realize that although I'm trained as a philologist, and I'm still very much interested in words and how they're used in their context, uh, I decided that the questions that historians ask themselves, um, who, where, when, why, for what purpose, uh, for whose benefit, those were the questions that, that interested me more. And I wrote a, a book that headed in that direction. Uh, and then when looking around for a new topic, um, I began to realize that I was somewhat frustrated with the existing historiography, which is very, very good, especially in Poland, but also in Ukraine, Belarus, and Lithuania, in the communist period even. Uh, but it all focused almost entirely on the nobles and on intellectual history. And it was, so it was seen from uh, way above and um, did not take into account at all re regionalisms, local phenomena, uh, burgers, peasants, for the most part. So I decided that I would like to work on uh, these topics in a place. And I started gathering materials on various cities, Gdańsk, uh, Lwów, Krakow, Vilno. And I, I landed in Vilno, and I got stuck there for 15 years. And the book we're discussing is the, the, the result of that. Great. Well, I, we think of Vilnius today probably as a, um, a, a bit of an out-of-the-way out place. I've lived in Vilnius a couple different times, and people always ask me, where is it? And um, it doesn't seem like it's on the um, paths crossing Europe. And yet in the beginning of the introduction, you refer to a a, a subgenre of early modern literature of reports from Vilnius. So obviously people were traveling through it at that time. And can you describe um, the population of Vilnius in the mid-17th century? Because these reports, as you say, either marveled at or decried the city's diversity and peaceful coexistence. Uh, yes. Uh, the reason people were there is, um, of course, because uh, Vilnius was the second capital of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was the capital of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So it was, you're quite right, uh, almost on the peripheries. 
Um, wars with Muscovy were a constant concern, but it was also a place where papal uh, envoys, nuncios would come, and um, when the Jesuit order was founded, uh, Jesuits from all over Europe and from Poland, and they were all shocked uh, at the diversity and uh, the fact that it worked, and they wrote back about this. Uh, the exaggerated stories uh, claim that in a family of five, there would be five confessions, and that there were 70 total, and uh, things like this. Uh, it wasn't that way. Um, but the city was, from the beginning, mixed, because um, uh, Ruthenians uh, had uh, come to the city, um, especially after the destruction of Kiev in 1240, bringing with them Chancery Ruthenian, which became the, the official language of royal documents, grand ducal documents uh, in the Grand Duchy. So um, in the early 15th, 16th century, uh, there were two different groups, and they, called, they were identified and called themselves Greeks and Romans. Romans were Roman Catholics. Uh, they were not Roman at all. They were various things. There were Lithuanians, some Poles, lots of Germans. Uh, and Greeks were Greek Orthodox. But then in the course of the 16th century, with the fragmentation of Western Christendom, uh, we began to have in Vilna, very briefly, uh, an Anabaptist sect, an anti-Trinitarian sect, but they did not last there. Uh, they lasted elsewhere in Poland. But... Uh, a Calvinist church and a Lutheran church uh, uh, arose. And uh, then in 1596, the uh, union of the Greek uh, Orthodox hierarchy with Rome, uh, while keeping the Eastern Rite, uh, is to say they recognized the primacy of the Pope, but they were still uh, Lutheranians, Eastern Orthodox, uh, split the Greeks. But the city kept its division between Romans and Greeks. So um, a, a brief example, uh, early in the century, there was some friction between Romans and Greeks, and it was decided that from then on, in the magistracy, uh, the six councillors who were elected each year, two of whom would be burgomasters, uh, would be 50-50, one from the Greek side and one from the Roman side. By the time there were five Christian confessions uh, in Vilna, by 1596, uh, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists competed for seats and were successful, all of them, uh, uh, in the magistracy, and both uh, Greek Orthodox and Uniates competed for seats. What makes Vilna different is that um, this... Uh, mixture of confessions remained. In most other royal cities in Poland, uh, power was uh, concentrated in the hands of Roman Catholics or in royal Prussia in the hands of Lutherans. So the, this makes Vilna, in a sense, an outlier. And so in this city uh, of Vilnius, which is Vilno at the time, which is not a very large city, 
Um, people were obviously living in close quarters. And you begin your book with a series of detailed maps of Vilnius. And then the first chapter takes us on a block by block survey of the city that was done by the royal quartermaster in 1636. So why was establishing the physical space and the locations of buildings so important for your study of the relationships among the city's inhabitants? Uh, the structure of the book um, resulted from a chance discovery of an archival source. That's often the way these things work. Um, I was trying to find everything I could in Poland uh, before I went to work on the ar- in the archives in Lithuania. And um, I happened on this survey, which was done by an appointee of the king. Uh, and it was done each time the king came to his a, a city that was a royal city. Poznań was a royal city. Vilna was a royal city. Uh, that was during the reign of Władysław IV, and he rather liked Vilna, and he came five times. And we have two of these surveys. And there, it was handed to me, and as I say, I was trained as a philologist, and it was a list. Um, I said, that's nice, and put it away. Uh, and about a week later, I thought, oh, that really is nice because um, the survey gives a description of uh, the city house by house. It says, beginning from the castle, beneath Castle Gate, on the left-hand side, we have this house, and it is made of wood or it is made of bricks. It has these, these rooms. It has uh, this much space for horses out back. Um, it's un- subject to this law or that law because of the and patchwork of laws. And most importantly, uh, the owner or current uh, chief resident w- was named. So I thought, well, um, if m- my question is, how did it work? Uh, then I ought to know where people lived. They live in uh, something like ghettos, or did they uh, live interspersed all over the city? And I thought this might help me. The one problem was that the uh, survey told you everything it could about the physical properties of the of the building because they had to figure out where the king's entourage was going to stay. And what is why the fourth was a lover of Italian opera and his entire opera company, including his castrato, um, traveled with him. And so they had to be put up somewhere. And many, many others in the, the Queen's washerwoman, and the King's lackeys. So I know where they lived. Um, and I know the name of the owner of the house, but I didn't know the confession. That's the one thing that interested me. And that in itself was interesting because it wasn't interesting to the man who took down the record. He didn't care. Uh, he did know where Jews lived, but, uh, but he didn't note uh, what confession a Christian was. Um, so I quickly made a database of all this, um, sort of through serendipity, decided this would be useful, uh, names and addresses. I made maps, uh, detailed maps of the city, district by district, and then I went to Vilna and just find what I could find. And uh, the city burned uh, natural causes in 1610. So from uh, after 1610, before 1610, there aren't very many sources at all. 
and it burned in the Muscovite occupation in 1655. So between 1610 and 1655, there aren't there's much either. But after 1661 and the liberation of the city, the return to normalcy, uh, the record becomes reasonably thick. So my project then became to read everything that I could find on 17th century Vilna in the archives, in the legal documents, church documents, and match these second half of the century sources with my detailed map that stems from a document from 1636. Luckily for me, it turns out that people mostly returned to their old houses and rebuilt them. People are creatures of habit. They want to live where they used to live. Uh, and in these documents, um, I could sometimes figure out what confession people were. Uh, there are certain documents that tell you that. I have a list of household um, donors uh, of money to the Lutheran church. So I have a list of Lutherans. I have a Calvinist baptismal record. So I have a list of some Calvinists. Uh, I have Catholic baptismal records. Um, last wills and testaments almost invariably tell you the confession because we have to know where to bury the person. Um, some documents are um, harder to interpret because, as I'll talk about later probably, uh, there was a considerable crossing of confessional boundaries in certain areas of life. So certain documents are not um, decisive in deciding what the, what the confession was. But with this information, I was able to um, map out uh, the confessional topography of the city, but only by owners of houses. Uh, and so I found that in general, people like to live with their own kind. Uh, Lutherans live with Lutherans, but they live right across the street from uh, Calvinists. We're living with Calvinists. Uh, Ruthenians live together. Uh, Roman Catholics live together. But, um, each of these houses was inhabited by many more than just one uh, family, not just the owner. Uh, and the, the technical term for that was a, a neighbor, a sonshed. Uh, and they do not occur very often in the sources. So by chance, I would occasionally find um, named neighbors, in other words, subletters of rooms, uh, apartments in these houses, and occasionally I was able to match confession to that, and the result I found was that, yes, again, people like to be with their um, people of their own confession, but that houses were also were mixed confessionally. So, a neighbor, so I established neighborhoods of house ownership, but uh, once you start looking a little bit f further, you find cohabitation of houses between Lutherans and Catholics, uh, Lutherans and Jews, even. Uh, so it's quite a mixed picture. In addition to this um, physical space and defining physical space, but also mixing in physical space, you talk about uh, Vilno as a temporal space. And I thought it was really interesting that you described the acoustic environment of the city and um, called it a city in which the calls to worship rarely cease. And of course, these temporal rhythms of worship are defining differences between different religious and confessional groups. So how were these different religious practices negotiated um, in the daily lives of Vilnians? 
Yes. Um, the material you're talking about um, stems from an article, the only article I wrote before I had actually seen any archival sources, because uh, I was able to find uh, royal documents uh, instructing villains to respect each other's calendars because the city was on two Christian calendars after 1582, the old and the new, all the Greeks, Unions and Orthodox were on the old calendar. And so these told people how they should, um, what should happen. We should not summon Greeks before the court on their holidays, uh, but Greeks should not work on Roman Catholic uh, holidays. They did anyway, but um, so th- th- this um, picture became clear. And then I began to think about how the city functioned. Uh, there was a municipal clock. It was a, the era of watches and clocks. But only the very wealthy had a watch. Uh, and there was a clock on the town hall. But the way people knew what to do, get up in the morning, go to church services, uh, go to sleep for curfew at night, uh, was done by bells, and people, I'm sure, were attuned to the bell, and they said, oh, that's my church. Uh, some of them were uh, applied to the entire city and, and would call the entire city to aid if there were a fire or an attack or something like that. Uh, and also, um, there's a different rhythm of worship. Christians on Sundays and other days, uh, Jews on Saturdays, um, Tatars on Fridays. Um, and, of course, then Easter would be different for almost all the time between the Greeks and the Romans. So uh, Roman Catholics would ring bells as part of the funeral announcement and funeral service. Uh, there was considerable less bell ringing among Lutherans and Calvinists. So uh, I began to imagine uh, what it sounded like to be a citizen of that really, really small place that is chock full of churches and places of worship, each with its own bell tower. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's really interesting to think about that um, as them moving through space and moving through this environment with um, sound as well. Often, I think historians we don't look so much as the at uh, the acoustic environment, um, but these people were communicating each other, um, uh, engaging with each other, and yet they also um, had a lot of written materials that um, served to. Uh, create or promote stereotypes and caricatures um, uh, in ways that they identified different groups. Can you talk more about how each confession perceived other confessions? Uh, That's very difficult, and it's only by chance that I found occasionally uh, a reference to certain things. Uh, Germans uh, were recognizable by the the pants they they wore, pludre, Um, in one document, I'm told that a person was identified because he walked like a German. I don't know what that means, but apparently it's recognizable. Um, the clergy of the various uh, confessions would look different, bearded or not, the different kinds of clothing. Um, but it's very rare that we find um, 
somebody assessing the other confession. One of the only ones I found was in a um, protestation by a confectioner uh, who said, who accused his um, apprentice of, no, his apprentice accused him of um, having uh, scales that were not uh, up to the norm. And so um, his uh, master took him to court and uh, the one uh, alleged that the other one had called him a papist dog. Uh, But other than that, um, it is very hard to see uh, the stereotyping in in, in daily life. Okay. And uh, we'll actually come back to litigation in a moment because that's a big part of the book and one of the uh, major um, uh, collection of sources that you use. But before we get to litigation, uh, I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about toleration. And so if Vilno was known as a city uh, in which these different confessions tolerated each other, how do you define toleration and what do you mean when you talk about practices of toleration? And also, who was tolerating whom? And those are very good questions. Um, I decided to organize the book, in a sense, in two parts. And so the beginning were uh, chapters that gave the, as it were, the, the, the backdrop for the dramas of life. So the topography of the city, structure of architecture of houses, which brought people together, mm-hmm. timekeeping, language and stereotyping these things. Uh, and then the rest of the book was to be organized according to the life cycle, birth and godparenting through marriage, uh, separation, divorce, occasionally work, um, uh, poor relief and uh, death and, and funeral rituals. And so what I set out to find out was uh, how these people who were living fairly close together uh, negotiated these various thing, things. And I use the word toleration, to, toleration rather than tolerance because tolerance is something that um, only the radical right was discussing at that time because it's always the minority who wants tolerance. And so they write about the theory of it. Uh, for these people, it was living with uh, others who they probably considered um, incorrigibly pig-headed and uh, could not see the light. But you have to work with them. You have to live next to them. Um, in some cases, uh, you serve as a godparent for their children. Uh, so it is a, um, I wouldn't say exactly holding your nose, but it, it, it is a kind of rough and tumble practice of figuring out how far I can go in uh, coexisting with uh, my neighbors uh, in these aspects of their lives. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a few examples? Because you, as you said, you talk about this in um, across the whole spectrum of a of a, a person's life and things like education and the workplace and poor relief. So, could you give us just a couple of the examples that would demonstrate? Um, how these different confessions were actually interacting and tolerating each other on a, a daily basis. Uh, certainly. Um, well, I, I, I sought 
to find out in, in the chapter on birth uh, and godparenting, first of all, um, what were the rhythms of uh, birth over the years? Because um, the Catholics and also to a certain extent the Greeks um, were supposed to abstain from sexual relations during Lent, so there's a known curve of births. And I discovered that uh, the whole city, uh, it's, it's minimal evidence, but the, it seems that the whole city followed that pattern. So in that sense, uh, they were not shocked when there, I mean, there, there were no surprise births at the wrong time, nine, nine months after the middle of Lent. Uh, then what I discovered is that um, I found one particular, family, a middling uh, class Lutheran family. Uh, and I was sitting one summer reading the baptismal records for the Catholics, which is scintillating reading, moralists. Uh, and uh, all of them formulaic. The priest says the same thing every time. The baptism of this child, um, son or daughter of this person, legitimate or illegitimate, raised from the uh, font by uh, X, Y, and Z. Uh, no identification of confession, but I knew the names by that time. And so I recognized this German family, and I started counting it up, and they were in the Catholic Church on a regular basis, um, serving as godparents to uh, Roman Catholic babies. And what is remarkable is that one one time they served as a godparent for a uh, Jewish convert, an adult, uh, who was then baptized. And that's a big story, because usually a bishop is, serves as a, as a godparent or somebody important on the Catholic side of things. And here is this Lutheran, and he had to be a known Lutheran. The priest was recording that, had to have known who he was. And he recorded it without comment. Uh, so if you didn't know the names, you just read the record, you noticed this. So I started to ask myself, you know, who are these people? Why? And I discovered a cluster uh, and of godparents who were not Roman Catholic, serving in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, who all lived on one street. Uh, and, and some were Greek, Orthodox and Union, some were Lutherans. Uh, so I, I, I came to the conclusion that um, Godparenting, at least for these people, was not so much uh, aimed at um, watching over religious instruction and discipline, but um, giving the child a patron in life, uh, uh, one who lives right next door, uh, one who may probably be work in the same profession as uh, his or her parents, because the professions were um, sometimes con uh, concentrated in certain, certain streets. So uh, this is a somewhat different picture of baptism uh, and and and, and uh, godparenting than we usually think of. And in some ways, <laughs> in fact, in Western Europe, um, this became forbidden explicitly by the time it was still being done in a widespread way in Vilma. I find that really interesting um, at the this seemingly uh, very much sort of religious sacrament is being used to build these connections across um, uh, confessions. 
And yet at the opposite end of the spectrum, as people were, when people died, you um, point out that a death seems to be a crucial moment of defining difference um, rather than building um, across religious differences. So can you talk more about the role of death and, and uh, uh, funeral rituals and funeral practices and how they both um, defined people confessionally, but perhaps even maybe in some cases built networks? Yes, I think it, it makes sense to jump from the beginning to the end. I would like to come back to marriage okay. workplace eventually. But um, people, uh, scholars generally think of um, funeral rituals as the, the key, um, well, the, the key moment in, in the Reformation. The Reformation uh, got rid of the third place, purgatory. Uh, the Greeks didn't call it purgatory, but it was a third place, not necessarily with a purging fire, but it, it, what, what did this mean? Uh, this meant that prayers of intercession uh, with saints, with um, the Virgin Mary, uh, were of value uh, to Roman Catholics and to both the Greek uh, confessions, uh, because the, their loved ones were in this middle place, and um, so they were praying. They, 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 the person dying and writing his testament would fund uh, memorial masses for himself, uh, so that prayers be said for his soul. Uh, by banishing purgatory, the Protestants, uh, in a sense, said... Um, the funeral ritual should simply be a dignified um, gathering around uh, a, a good, pious person who is falling as if falling asleep peacefully. Uh, there should be no crying, no ca can candles. They'd have candles with dark, but uh, not as a, in a ritual way. No uh, singing. No, no uh, liturgy. There would be a, a Roman Catholic room of the dying, um, and no bell ringing, for the most part. Uh, and so, what I found is that that applies to a great extent, but surprisingly, uh, the Calvinists, who were supposed to be the most strict in this. Uh, were quite lax in Vilna, and they allowed funeral processions during which they would sing hymns, and they would say prayers over the body at the at the funeral itself, and there would be the occasional bell rung. Uh, so here we do see the parting of the ways, but a certain amount of syncretism with the Roman Catholics. Uh, and maybe I should return to the question you asked me I didn't answer, Who's tolerating whom uh, is a very good question. Um, in the this, uh, Confederation of Warsaw, 1573, um, it was declared that peace is to be maintained between uh, dissidents in religion. Uh, and when that document was written, a, dis a dissident in religion was everybody, including Roman Catholics, because everybody, because there was not, no unity. But slowly, it became the Roman Catholics who were doing the tolerating of the others. Uh, but that can 
in certain contexts be a little bit different because the Lutherans in Vilna were um, disproportionately represented in certain professions at, at the higher end, such as uh, doctors, surgeons, um, we would call them international businessmen. And so there was a certain pull towards the Lutherans in the city as well. But uh, but for the most part, uh, one could say it's the Roman Catholics who by that time are tolerating the rest. <laughs> and so we've talked about birth and death. So let's go back to that those middle stages of life and, and talk about how these practices of toleration played out in marriage, in the workplace, and in um, poor relief, which really is, um, in a sense, coming together to serve the whole community. Yes. Um, let's start with uh, marriage. Um, I can't uh, give a number. Uh, I can't give a number for m- most of these things. Uh, I can only say the phenomenon existed, uh, which is important in itself, I believe. Uh, I found a number of mixed marriages. Um, it was more common for Lutherans to marry Calvinists than in some other cases. Uh, and it's also the case that um, people don't go, uh, either they're lazy, or I don't, they, they don't want to go very far to find their spouse. So usually they find him next door. Or in the case of these mixed marriages um, on the main street below uh, the castle gate, where Lutherans were on the left, from Calvinists on the right, they might venture so far as to go across the street and find their mate. Um, one surprise was that um, Ruthenians of both um, confessions, Greek Orthodox and Unit, intermarried. And since I had worked on Smotritsky first, this Archbishop who converted and um, read mostly the pamphlet wars, that came out of Vilno at this time, one had the impression that this must be the really the sorest wound uh, in the uh, society at the time. Uh, but maybe that applied to the priests and, and the hierarchs only, because I found enough mixed marriages. And what is interesting is that the women were on the whole orthodox, and the men were on the whole uh, unit, because at a certain point you needed to be unit to hold certain offices and to have certain status in the city. So uh, one conclusion could be that there's a, there's a kind of mm, supra-Ruthenian identity with a domestic version of it and a public version of it. The domestic version of it is led by the woman of the house, but the husband may go along church with this, but the uh, public version of it would be uh, on the unit side. Um, so then people ask the question, does, does this mean uh, indifference? Uh, and I cite the example of a unit man married to a uh, Orthodox woman, and they died within six months of each other, and I was reading their, through the, the books of testaments, and so Hundreds of pages later, after the man's testament, I found the woman's testament, clearly written up by the same notary, because it used the same rhetorical devices, and they were quite unusual. Uh, and you never discover which church they're going to be buried in until they say, I give my uh, immortal soul unto God and my sinful body unto the earth, where it is to be uh, interred at this church. 
And we discovered that this couple who um, had no problem sharing a marriage bed wanted to be buried across the street from each other uh, at churches that, according to the pamphlet wars of Smotritsky's time, were shooting uh, sulfur uh, arrows at each other. So uh, what this is not indifference about confession, but it is um, a willingness to cross certain lines like that. One other thing, uh, this, this has to do with education, is that it was by no means a law, but uh, there's a pattern of um, raising uh, boys in the confession of the father and raising girls in the confession of the mother. And this, again, is clearly a, a compromise to maintain peace in the family, but it probably means that they were all both going to each other's churches at some times. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting that they made that uh, uh, confessional uh, difference along gender lines as well. Um, and you, you asked me about the workplace. Um, if you would like me to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the guilds in uh, Villeneuve, uh, for the most part, did not include Jews. In some cities in Poland, Lithuania, the Jews were forced to join, join the guilds with the Christians, and they were forced to pay money uh, to for candles at a church, um, which obviously they didn't like doing, so they saw it as paying money into the guild box, which was what they were doing, in fact. Uh, in Vilna, uh, there are very few cases of a, of a guild which included uh, a certain number of Jews. Um, but the, the crucial thing about Vilna is that there were no mono-confessional guilds. And in most other Polish-Lithuanian cities, uh, a guild would be Roman Catholic only, or uh, could be Ruthenian only. Uh, so here, um, you have to make the same kinds of decisions as you made in the, in the magistracy, because they elect elders every year. And so we have these statutes that say um, every year on uh, this saints festival uh, you must gather to elect an elder uh, greeks sit on the left romans on the right and it's the same division as it is in the magistracy you must show up at a certain time of the day you must uh, not have eaten anything before you come you must be sober and you have to check your weapon at the door uh, and then you voted for elders, typically two, one Greek and one Roman, and each one had a key. And so you could only open the um, guild box if both of them were there. Sounds a little bit like um, nu- nuclear arms negotiations or certain sort. Uh, this led into um, poor relief, because one aspect of poor relief is guilds were partially about poor relief. And so the guild box would support uh, widows or uh, wives of, of sick uh, um, fellow tinsmiths or something like that. So this meant that this, this part of poor relief uh, was pan-confessional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's really um, interesting to hear all these ways in which they are working together, there's cross-confessional marriages, they're um, engaging with each other, even in um, uh, you know baptism, where they're actually in each other's churches, and yet 
amazingly enough, they were also what you call a community of litigation, that they really did seem to be taking each other to court a lot. And you argue that it's actually this um, th- this process of litigation that fostered an environment in which such a varied citizenry could cohabitate. Could, so can you talk more about that? Yeah, this is not an original thought. Others have um, looked at this for northern Italian cities. Um, Poland-Lithuania was uh, an, an unusually litigious society. And they would go to court to complain. Uh, the complaint was called a protestation, protestatia. And they could complain about um, uh, harm to their honor, there are various ways of doing that. Um, being assaulted physically, uh, having things stolen from them. Uh, and honor, as often as anything else, was, was there. I don't know whether it's because we don't have the documents or because uh, they were never followed up. But the vision you get reading these these books is that um, people did this as a sort of pre- preemptive thing. And they always say at the end, um, uh, leaving uh, open the possibility that I will continue this litigation, I hereby uh, register this document. And then for the most part, there's never a continuation. So it is uh, a way of keeping people in check um, without results. Um, there are a couple of accusations of witchcraft, and I haven't can find no evidence of any continuation of the uh, trial, much less an execution. We have the records of, of the ex- executioner for the century, which are very interesting. Um, so, um, uh, oh, and uh, the accusation itself of being a witch could result in um, the, pers- the, the person who made the accusation being taken to court for um, harming the honor of the person who had been accused of being a witch. So uh, this went on constantly, and uh, uh, Jews were in court, Tatars were in court. Uh, that meant that um, it was, it was a, on the one hand, all they had. On the other hand, they clearly had a certain confidence in the legal system, and there are very, very many different types of courts that they could go to um, uh, to keep um, to, to keep things in order. And it seems uh, by the fact that they didn't often follow up, it, in some ways it's almost a low-stakes way to deal with tensions that arise in the community or within groups or within individuals, that by filing these um, uh, accusations, they can in a sense, make public the concern, but then they don't have the the divisiveness of a whole court proceedings. And so it's sort of, it's almost it struck me as a way of letting off steam, so to speak. That's exactly correct. And I think these documents were open for anybody to read. Uh, so it served sort of as a scandal sheet newspaper. And some of them are rather funny. There are, a lot of them are rather funny. One man accused his wife of trying and parents-in-law of trying to poison him twice, uh, once in his bigos, which is a Polish cabbage stew, and once in his vodka. 
So that shows intent clearly because he's going to drink and eat that. Um, footnote, uh, volumes later, decades later, I discover that he's leaving his entire um, estate to his wife who has taken such good care of him all these years, and it's the same wife. Uh, so. Uh, so obviously she she made up in some way for the uh, poisoning attempts later in life. <laughs> uh, but the the funny thing is that in doing this, in in going to court and saying my neighbor called me this, that, and the other thing, or said that I'd done this, you are making public uh, to all of Vilno that somebody said that you uh, do these things, uh, which strikes me as somewhat odd. <laughs> Yeah, because then, you know, the, that may attach to you even if uh, your attempt is to say that it's not true. Yeah. Well, you know, I called the um, litigation a low-stakes uh, way of resolving tensions, but you also look at violence that happened, and despite the these practices of toleration, um, violence did occur on a regular basis in Vilno. Christian on Jew, Christian on Muslim, Christian on other Christian um, confessions— um, but you also argue that, um, to at least a certain extent, that this violence um, was a, was crucial to maintaining the peace. So explain what you mean by scripted violence and the role that it played in the 17th century. Uh, here I was um, under the influence of a very good book on um, uh, uh, Spain and Aragon in the late Middle Ages and um, uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. Uh, what I found when I started digging, uh, into the very few records we have of what they call tumults, tumult, uh, was that they happened at certain crucial moments, the ones against Jews and against Protestants, well, the ones against Jews, most often during Lent, um, I found one against the Orthodox, uh, that happened on Greek Easter, which means that the Roman side of the city knew what when Greek Easter was coming, and they went to the church to uh, disrupt things. Um, Jews, but also Protestants of various um, stripes, uh, were warned not to open their windows and not to go outside on Corpus Christi Day, because these would be public processions, and the priests would be carrying the monstrance with the with the Eucharist from outdoor altar to outdoor altar. And because uh, the Protestants had quite different views about the nature of uh, communion and what the Eucharist is, uh, the simple presence of them uh, could be seen as a provocation, and it often led to um, uh, altercations that, that were brought to court. That's the only reason we know about them. Uh, this, again, to return to the guilds, is something that needed to be negotiated. Do we require, uh, because we, we are, a guild is a partly religious brotherhood, and in Vilno that means practically always Roman Catholic. So what do the non-Roman Catholics do uh, about not going to Mass, about not, going, not participating in Corpus Christi processions? Um, various uh, solutions were worked out. One was to pay into the guild box, um, which as the, the Jews thought of it in other cities was safe because it's just for the guild, but the money, some of it eventually goes to the Corpus Christi 
procession into the candles for the guild altar and things like this. Uh, so these things had to be negotiated constantly. Um, <laughs> violence is violence, um, but the Jews, uh, we know about this violence because Jews brought uh, their complaints to court. And um, again, I don't think anybody had followed up the calendar to see that these things happen uh, at, at sort of scripted times in the religious calendar of uh, other, other confessions. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons that Villeneuve provides such an interesting case study is that there isn't a duality of Christians and Jews or Christians and Muslims, um, but there's both of those and also a multiplicity of Christian confessions that are interacting with each other. So uh, based on the work that you've done on Vilno, how do we better understand paradigms of early modern confessionalization? Uh, Yes. Um, There's a large literature on the so-called parody cities of the Holy Roman empire where two confessions lives and would work out ways of sharing. Uh, one way was called simultaneum, simultaneity, and that meant that the, both confessions would use one church. Sometimes it meant that Catholics would have mass at seven and, and Lutherans would have their service at eight. Sometimes they simply made a wall in the middle of the church and put altars on both sides, and they would meet at the same time. These churches still exist. Uh, and the classic... Uh, study of parodies cities is called two confessions in one city and this is meant to shock you and to tell you that you know this is how they worked it out uh i think the fact that there are five confessions in vilna not to mention jews and tatars meant that it was harder to direct your animosity toward any one group uh clearly jews and christians are as separate as they are in most places, except that in Vilna, there's nothing like a ghetto and Jews and Christians shared houses uh, on, a, on a regular basis. Uh, J- uh, Christians and Tatars, uh, similar. Tatars did not live within the city walls. So this was not a question there. Um, the question that always comes up uh, when I talk about my book uh, or when people review it is, was Vilna unique? Uh, and that's a very difficult question to answer. I, I, I think to a certain extent, but we can get into that later if you like. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can go ahead and talk about that now, because um, I, what I find particularly interesting is the is the source base and and the way in which you um, had to and were able to um, build this. Um, this, both the story and this analysis on such a wide variety of sources, given that you had limited um, sources in any one category, but you were able to find something uh, really across the spectrum to speak to these issues. So maybe you can talk about both was Vilnius unique in or Vilno unique in um, in these practices of toleration and in this um, this living together of uh, multi confessional uh, space, uh, but also talking about is Vilno unique in um, in either the level of source bases in terms of having it there to make this kind of um, uh, work possible, or is it a lower level than you might find in some other cities? I wish I could answer that question. 
I've started reading secondary literature. Um, you're quite right. In Vilna, uh, it was um, a reaction to one very rich source, which was that survey of the city, and then the poverty of sources uh, after that. So it became a, a matter of linking things, linking names. Um, I know that for some cities that was, for instance, the parody city of the Holy Roman Empire of Augsburg, um, the problem for the people who work on that city is they have way too many sources. There's way too much to read. Uh, so Vilna was, was fun because uh, you could, I could read them all, everything for the 17th century practically. Uh, so I re have read much of the literature in Augsburg um, and it answers some of the questions I'm asking, but I suspect that they have surveys of houses similar to what I have and that they have more information about confessions and could ha have posed some of the same questions. So I can't always get answers to whether Vilna was unique or not. I can in certain specific cases, for instance, Louf, uh, the view. The, the capital of western um, uh, of eastern Galicia under the Habsburgs, western Ukraine um, was a very mixed city, also a royal city, but it was a crown city. Um, Vilna was the capital of the Grand Duchy, and these are two different things. Uh, Polish scholars don't always recognize it so so easily. Um, so the mix in Lvov did not lead to um, bringing the groups together. The, the Ruthenians were limited to Ruthenian Street. They were not allowed to wear a priestly garb outside of that. They weren't supposed to bring bells outside of that, unless at certain times. Uh, the guilds were mono-confessional. So in, in certain aspects, I can find places where I can say, yes, they'll know this different. Um, there's a little bit done on the city of Polotsk. Belarus uh, now um, that tells me uh, in certain places that things there were a little bit like they were in Vilna sometimes and a little bit different at other times. So I begin to wonder whether this is a difference between life in the Grand Duchy and life in the Crown Lands of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, and but then looking and reading work on France on on uh, German cities. Um, since I haven't found anybody who decided to structure their analysis the way I did, and why should they have to, uh, this makes my job uh, a lot harder in trying to answer the question, was Vilna unique? <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving us your time today to talk about this book, which I really enjoyed reading and um, felt that I got a glimpse of uh, of really the daily life um, in um, at this time period in Vilno. So as a last question, we always like to find out from uh, scholars what they're working on now. So what's your current project? Uh, very good question. I, I was um, sort of uh, 
at a loss for a next project for a long time because I worked so, for so many years on Vilno and I waited for the publisher to accept it. So in the meantime, I took on the task of translating all of Chopin's uh, Polish letters into English, which is coming out this week during the, the Polish the, during the uh, Chopin uh, competition in Warsaw. Uh, but that's not what I'm really interested in. Um, one project is what I just described to you. Was Vilna unique? To, and to look at settlement patterns. I've started looking at Jewish settlement patterns and how they worked. And uh, oddly enough, it's easier to, fit, to find information on Jewish settlement patterns in Christian cities than it is to discover whether um, two Christian confessions uh, intermarried the same, same districts and other things. Uh, that's one thing I'm working on. Uh, another thing I've thought about is a, a kind of hybrid handbook, um, which, which should also be a history of the Reformations, Counter-Reformation, and Orthodox Reform in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Obviously, that's a huge topic. But what I'm thinking of is... Uh, interspersing uh, a select set of primary sources that I will translate into English, uh, and then analysis. Uh, because we have nothing to use in the, in the classroom uh, on this. And I think it could be something that students and scholars alike might find quite useful, but I'm not sure that I will live long enough to do that. Uh, one last thing is I, I, I like working on individual uh, cases. And there are two Polish oddball priests, one 17th century, one 18th century. And I've been thinking about looking at their oddest work and also writing a biography of them. One was named Wojciech Dembowenski, who was a Franciscan. He died in 1646. And he wrote a small book in which he proves that Polish, or at least Slavic, was the language spoken in the Garden of Eden, that God spoke this language to them. He was not alone. There, there's a Swedish book, I'm told, that says the same thing. But it's all done by etymology, so that you discover through the etymology of all these things you never thought about, that they actually come from, from Polish. You know, I'd never thought about any of that. Uh, and then there was a, a Jesuit-trained priest who had not joined an order, whose name was Benedict Kmielowski, died in 1763. And uh, he's best known for a gigantic four-volume encyclopedia. This is just at the time of the encyclopedias in, in France. Uh, his uh, is seen by Poles as the epitome of backwardness. Uh, it's four volumes. The title, I'll just translate a little bit of it briefly. It's one of those long Baroque titles. But the title is New Athens. Or um, the, an academy full of all science, uh, divided into various uh, subjects and, and subclasses, um, for a reminder for the wise, instruction for idiots, um, practical advice for those engaged in politics, and entertainment for the mel melancholics. Who could resist a book like this? Uh, <laughs> well, I certainly hope that you're able to uh, get that biography written So, because I want to interview you about that book. I think that will be a very uh, entertaining and uh, thought-provoking uh, book interview. <laughs> okay. All right.
And I can see how you can't resist. I hope it's there. I'll just give you one last example. It's not okay. in alphabetical order. It's just as it came up. And it's full of all the superstitions that you know, old wives' tales and um, attitudes towards the other, people who lived at the antipodes, uh, Jews, Tatars, uh, Protestants, uh, folk relief, uh, medicine, uh, long, long uh, entries. And then he suddenly decides that he needs an entry on the horse. And so you see the next entry, and you see, first of all, it's extremely short. Uh, and so the horse. Uh, what the horse is, everybody can see for themselves. And he goes on to the next entry. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I, uh, I look forward to seeing uh, what you make of uh, the horse and all of the other things that uh, he talks about, as well as hopefully finding out um, how we know that God spoke Polish. Um, but in the meantime, thank you for talking to us today about your book. I really enjoyed reading it. And um, I know that our listeners will have enjoyed hearing more about it um, from you directly. And so thanks to our listeners for joining us today. And we look forward to next month's conversation about a new book in East European Studies.